right. If you have your Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter 1. Um, if you're a guest, we are three, four weeks into a study in Galatians, uh, but you're in luck because we're on verse 8 so of chapter 1. So we're glad you're here. Uh, you can easily catch up. We'll give a quick review as we jump in, but uh, really glad that you joined us, um, especially if you're a guest. While you turn to Galatians, I got two quick things. A uh, reminder, tonight's date night at our church. If you signed up, uh, bring your children here before a couple minutes before five o'clock, and uh, we're going to periodically do this where we can invest in the marriages here at our church and uh, just give a night where you and your spouse can drop off your kids and go on a date. And uh, you don't have to be in the kid range if, to go on a date. So you can, you know, I've been telling our young couples, find one of these older couples. I will give you four or five names of them and make them take you to dinner and pay for it. And ask them about their marriage and learn from them and all of those things. Um, one of my top Christmas Eve dinners ever was leaving Christmas Eve service a couple years ago and going to eat with Mark and Carol Aiken at Cafe Piazza on the Square with Elizabeth and I. And I just got to hear from their wisdom and their life experience and all those kind of things. So um, if you're not in that range, if you're a young adult, uh, you're welcome to, to participate as well. Um, if you are a single parent, um, you don't have to have a reason. You can just bring your kid here and get two hours to do whatever you need to do. But it's five to seven tonight. If you signed up, we'd love for you to um, receive that reminder. And then one more thing, um, as we've been doing some hard work um, to really minister to you and get to know where you at, where you are in life and what you're going through, um, lots of needs have shown up. And uh, one of the things that is prevalent is God uses some meals um, to show up to people as they're walking through things. And we obviously wanna give you more opportunities than just making meals, but um, we have learned very quickly um, that one of the best things we can do for members of our church is just take care of dinner. And uh, we wanna count on you to do that. So if you're interested in saying, hey, I'd love to be on some kind of list that gets sent out when there's a need to send a meal to somebody or make a meal or buy a meal, you don't have to be good at cooking like I'm not, and can just, hey, we can send one over. Um, all you gotta do, I think there was a sign-up list in the women's class, but if you'll just grab a card around one of the seats and just put food team and your name on it and drop it in a black box, we'll take care of the rest. But uh, we're trying to build up that team uh, to give you opportunities to minister to one another throughout the week. And uh, that's just a really practical way we can do that. So um, that's it. Let's jump into Galatians 1. Um, Graham, is Graham in the room? There he is. Graham McDaniel, everybody. He's going to read our passage this morning. He's going to read Galatians 1, uh, 8 through 10. So if you'll stand where you are, um, if you're able for the reading of God's word, uh, Graham, would you like for me to hold this? Okay, cool. I'll hold this for you. And uh, Graham's going to read it, and then I'll pray, and uh, we'll uh, walk through this passage together. So whenever you're ready, Graham. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one who preaches to you, say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please the people? If I were still trying to please the people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Graham. Appreciate it. It, uh, it helps when I don't hold the mic in front of the words, uh, so I, I apologize for that, Graham. Uh, let me pray, and uh, we'll walk through these verses that Graham beautifully read for us uh, this morning. Father, um, God, meet us. Um, Father, there's nothing that I bring to this text at all. Um, so God, we ask that your spirit would move, um, that your word would breathe in our midst, 
Um, God, ultimately, um, that you would teach us. Um, God, your spirit wrote this word. Um, if we're in Christ, your spirit is in us. And God, even if we're not in Christ, uh, we pray that the spirit would move, that the winds would blow, as John 3 says. And God, you would bring those from death to life as they hear the word. Um, so God, make us more like your son. Um, guide your people by your voice once again. Not mine, not my commentary, but what your word says. Um, to the glory of your name alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so um, I brought, uh, this is the weirdest sermon illustration ever, but I brought a knife with me this morning. And um, kids, if you're in the room, do not bring knives to church, okay? I want to make that very clear. Uh, I'm an adult. Um, I I brought this for a reason. Uh, But the question is, and this is not to get controversial or political or anything like that. It's just an objective question. But is a knife a weapon? I heard some yeses, I heard some noes. Yes, I'm hearing some noes. The answer, this man, you guys are a lively bunch. We just need to, to kick off with an a, a icebreaker question every morning. Um, the answer is, it depends on who's using it and how they're using it. To some, it can be used as a weapon, but for others, it can be a tool. I want my surgeon to have a knife, right? It it makes things a lot easier for me and for him if he has one of these. Um, Granted, it can be used for lots of harm and lots of destruction, but it can also also be used for a lot of good. Um, At our house, it's used to open cardboard boxes that get dropped on our porch, Um, and that's about it. uh, But uh, you see how handy I am. Um, But we use it as a tool. And the reason I bring this up is because as we talk about the scriptures, I can't think of another thing that has been used more as a tool for some, but as a weapon for others. And what we've been talking about, essentially, in the first couple verses of Galatians, is there are people that have crept in since, you know, five minutes after Jesus left the earth and started twisting the words of God. It's what Satan has been doing since the very beginning of time and using it as a weapon. Anytime you change the gospel, anytime you add a single thing to it, you take a single thing away from it, you've now used it and wielded it as a weapon to put the burden on others. Hebrews 4 talks about the word of God as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing the division between joint and marrow and and revealing the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, that this is a, a powerful thing. And what's so ironic is that this message is really, really good news, but historically has been used to put burdens on people that they can't bear. And in the name of this sword and this word, people have used it as a weapon to say things that God never said and promise things that God never promised and build a ladder for you to try to still work your way up to God when this word, this book, is the complete opposite of that message. This word tells us that someone came who was promised from the beginning of time to do what you and I could never do, and he died the death that you and I deserved so that the work would be finished to where we never have to try to earn our relationship with God anymore. He has done it for us. But man, what's happening in Galatia, in our book that we're walking through, and what's happening in American churches all around the world, and it's, it's the message that, um, unfortunately, a lot of American churches are sending out internationally. I was talking with a guy from Russia this week, 
And he said um, he was young in the early 90s when Russia kind of opened itself up to the gospel. He said so many missionaries from so many different places flooded into Russia and they came with so many different messages. And often it was just burdens to put on people and ladders for them to try to climb. And what Paul is arguing here is as soon as you take away from you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you no longer have the gospel and you trouble people. And this is what has happened in Galatia. Galatia is a region of multiple churches um, and Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14 and shared the gospel and performed signs and wonders and miracles and um, God added to the saints, added to the number, those that were being saved and great things were happening and before Paul essentially could make it back to Jerusalem, he gets word that they had fallen into another gospel which is Jesus plus circumcision and Jesus plus obeying the Old Testament law and all of the practices, these feast days and being circumcised. And essentially, it's not just okay that you believe in Jesus. You also have to add these works to it. And anytime you do that, we talked about it last week, you will be troubled. And we look at this verse, Paul gives us the, the clear gospel. I just wanted to give you Galatians 1, 3 through 7 as a runway and as a review for those of you that might not um, have made it to the past couple weeks. But he says this, here's the gospel. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that you and I can have peace with God, sinners, rebels, wretches, we can have peace with God and it has nothing to do with our behavior. It's a free gift of God's grace. It's from God and the Father and in chapter three he'll say from the Spirit as well. But what did he do? He gave himself for our sins and delivered us from the present evil age according to the will, the desire, the good pleasure of God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. No works, nothing else on your part required. Jesus lived the life, Jesus planned this plan of redemption, he became a man, he lived the life we could not live, he died the death we deserve, he paid the price, he rose from the dead, he gave himself, he gets the glory. We get salvation, it's finished on the cross. And in verse six, Paul says, I am astonished that you would turn from that message and not just turn from a message, but you would turn from him. If you change Jesus, you don't just alter Jesus, you desert Jesus. If you say that Jesus's work wasn't good enough, it wasn't finished, then you no longer have the Jesus of the scriptures. Jesus as he revealed himself to be. As soon as you and I have to do something we no longer have the biblical Jesus because Jesus claimed that he finished the work and the father claimed that Jesus finished the work because he raised him from the dead. As Romans four says, he was raised for our justification, declaring us righteous. How do you know you've been made righteous? Because Jesus rose from the dead. The sacrifice was sufficient. He finished the work. And Paul says, I'm astonished that you would turn from um, the incarnated Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end, the perfect life, the criminal's death, the bodily resurrection, the atonement for sinners, and you would turn to this man-made religion where you have to start doing things to try to earn your salvation and you die with your fingers crossed, wondering if you've done enough. 
that as soon as you and I have to add something to it, as soon as it's up to us, Paul tells us that you will distort the message and you instantly become troubled. Why? Because if it's up to me, I'll never have enough assurance. I'll always be anxious because I can never measure up. And I will die with my fingers crossed, hoping that my works were good enough. And Paul says, I am shocked that you would turn from a message where it is finished because the God of the universe became a man and lived the perfect life to meet God's holy standard. And then in his obedience, he did not deserve it. He did not welcome or he did not do anything to to bring sin on himself. He was a innocent, spotless sacrifice that he would take on our sin. You would turn from that message and you would go and try to earn it yourself. He says, I am astonished. And you're not just deserting the gospel, you're deserting him who called you by his grace and are turning to a different gospel. And then he says in verse seven, there's not another gospel. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 11, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Romans eleven six. As soon as you add a work to it, you no longer have grace. Grace is a free gift. And as soon as you have to do something, you no longer have a free gift. You can either be saved by faith alone or works alone. And I use that very loosely because you and I can never have enough good works to save ourselves. But you've got two options. You choose the works route, which you can never do, or you choose the faith route, but you can't choose both. As soon as you add works to faith, you no longer have faith. Faith is trusting in what someone else has done. And as soon as it's up to you, you no longer have faith and you no longer have grace. If you and I have to do it. And Paul is shocked. And he has talked about the message. And today he is going to talk about the messenger. So if you look with me at verse eight, he says this. He says, but even if we, Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, I want to define accursed first because this will help us with the entire verse. Um, But the word, um, the phrase, let him be accursed in the Greek is anathema esto. Um, Esto is, is an imperative. It's make him be, let him be. He has to be accursed. And anathema comes first because it's for emphasis, we're putting the, you know, order doesn't matter in the Greek language. He says, we're putting the curse there in the front. I want you to see that, let, make this person be accursed. And the word accursed there, the word anathema in the Greek means um, to be set apart for God's wrath. It's not just, you know, let bad things happen to him, not let him not be successful in his endeavors. No, it's let him be set aside. If anyone, if myself or an angel from heaven, if anybody comes and declares a different gospel, set that person aside for the wrath of God. It's something or someone delivered over to God for destruction. He says, set them apart for the wrath of God. It's essentially the opposite of holiness, which is to be set apart unto devotion to God. He says, let's set this person apart for the wrath of God. Paul is not playing games. Why is he not playing games? Because people's souls are at stake. And as soon as you or I add to the gospel or take away from the gospel and think that you and I have to do something to earn our salvation, then you don't have a message that can save anymore. 
You're either trusting in Christ alone or you're trusting in your own works. And if you're trusting in your own works, you cannot be saved by that message because you cannot produce good enough works to save yourself. Real people's lives and souls are at stake and Paul is not playing around. And he says this, even if we, and I want you to see that, Paul puts himself on the chopping block here. If myself, if Barnabas, if somebody else comes along, and even if we preach a message that is contrary, that is against, that is different to the one we originally gave you, if we preach that message, let him be accursed. And we won't belabor the point, but this needs to be the standard in every church, including this one. If one day I fall away and start preaching something other than you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we have measures in place to get me out of here. Why? Because souls are at stake. And you should, just like Paul asked, you should test everything with the scriptures. Why? Because eternity hangs in the balance. You're either saved by Jesus Christ or you're trying to be saved by your own works. You can't have both. And if you deviate from the message, you deviate from Jesus and you no longer have a message that saves. If I cave to compromises due to peer pressure, if I change the message out of a fear, whatever it is, whatever church you go to, if they are not preaching that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, then find a church that is teaching that. And it doesn't have to be ours, but make sure you are getting the true gospel. And what's ironic about the American church is we often defend the messenger even if, the mess, if, the, if they get the gospel a little wrong, how do we respond? We, we're quick to run to them, go, well, their heart's in the right place. You know, they have good intentions or they're nice people and they're doing a lot of good. They're still doing some good things. But if they're not preaching a gospel that can save, it doesn't matter what they're doing. And we're quick to put up with a different message and defend the messenger. And Paul does the exact opposite, which is ironic. If you've read Philippians 1, the setting of Philippians 1 is Paul's in prison and he's talking about how his imprisonment is actually spreading the gospel even further. And he's like, there's other people around Philippi that are now showing up because I was you know, popular and uh, a leader and now I'm in prison. And so other people are showing up and they're preaching. And he's like, some of them are preaching out of goodwill and good intentions. Others are preaching out of selfish ambition, thinking to afflict me. He's like, they saw I'm locked up and they're like, here I go. This is my chance. This is my moment. Here's the spotlight. I'm gonna seize it. And they're not trying to do good. They're just trying to preach the message so that they can gain popularity. And instead of critiquing their motives, what does Paul do? He critiques the message. And in Philippians 1, he says, if they're preaching Christ, so what? As long as they get the message right, they'll have to deal with their motives. They're gonna have to stand before God one day and deal with their own motives. But we're quick to flip it and say, yeah, I mean, the message was a little off, but look at his motives. And Paul says, no, no, no. What matters most, what takes precedent is that you get the true gospel before any personality, before any preacher, before any status, doesn't matter how popular somebody is, what takes precedent is that you get the true gospel. And it doesn't mean, don't hear what Paul's not saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean that you should not look for character in a pastor, right? 
Paul says in 2 Timothy, he charges Timothy to do your best to present yourself as one before God who is approved, a worker who would not be ashamed by his life and his character and his words, rightly handling the word of truth. So he's not saying the character of your pastor doesn't matter, but he's saying what takes precedent is do they declare the true gospel? Do they get the message right? That's what takes precedent. And Paul uses strong language towards these people. He says, let these people, if they come in and they are intentionally changing the gospel message and putting a burden on people that they cannot bear, let them be set aside for the wrath of God, for the destruction of God. And you might be like, well, that's pretty harsh. Is that just Paul? Or does God feel that way? Well, we know from the doctrine of inspiration of scripture that the Holy Spirit carried Paul to write exactly what he wanted Paul to write. So yes, God feels that way. But if you want a stronger argument than that, all throughout the Old Testament, God has had strong feelings towards people who would prey on his children with a false message. Deuteronomy 18, he says, if a prophet comes and claims to prophesy in my name, and they lead people astray, and their prophecies don't come true, he says, put that person to death. I think we'd have a lot less false teachers in churches today if we would bring back Deuteronomy 18. It's kind of scary. And I want to be clear. Let me be charitable for a second. Um, If someone misspeaks or if someone says something wrong in interpreting a verse, um, we're not quick to label them a false teacher. Right? Praise God that you did not hear my sermons when I was first starting out in youth ministry at 21 years old. You know, I used to get the CDs and keep them. Like, one day I'm going to listen back to these and be so proud. Now I, I, I want them all destroyed, right? But I praise God that in my sanctification, I wasn't instantly labeled a heretic if I misinterpreted a verse. I'm not saying that. There's charity and there's grace for people. Um, in whatever spiritual season that they're in and their walk with the Lord, uh, we do our best and we do everything we can to, to rightly interpret the scriptures. But just because someone gets a tertiary interpretation wrong does not mean we label them a false teacher and we set them apart for destruction. This is someone who is intentionally changing the message and preying on people for their own gain, their own desire, changing the gospel message, have been confronted about it and are unrepentant in doing so. This is who Paul is dealing with, right? So please don't label me a false teacher if I mess up here on a Sunday or something like that. But if I routinely get the gospel message wrong and get the interpretation of the scriptures wrong, I welcome, please, the beauty of one of the greatest gifts God has given us is us. And if I'm falling into error, just like if one of your children was falling into error, I would pray that you would have enough love for me to tell me and to confront me. Amen? So please do so. I would love to cancel some meetings this week and sit in my office with you and open up the Bible and talk about the interpretation of the scriptures. Those are my favorite meetings of all time. So if you have any questions, um, but I want you to see Deuteronomy 18, put them to death. Ezekiel 13, God says that, that they will be removed from his people, they won't enter the land, they won't be counted amongst them. Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about false teachers are gonna show up, false prophets and the ravenous wolves. And he says, you'll know them by their fruit. A good tree will have good fruit and the bad trees will be thrown into the fire. That's what Jesus is talking about here. 
Second Peter, chapter two, Peter's talking about false teachers and he says their destruction will be swift. Jesus in Matthew 18 says, if you receive one of these children in my name and you cause them to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you see how strong and how much care Jesus takes to getting the gospel message right? In John chapter eight, he's confronting the Pharisees and he actually calls them sons of Satan. He tells them their father is the devil. Why? Because they're being used by him to change the gospel message, which has been Satan's aim from the very beginning. It's what he did in the garden. Take the word of God and distort it to bring trouble on the people. It's the same argument Paul's making in Galatians 1. Hey, did God actually say? No, God didn't mean that. God's keeping stuff from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have. Did God actually say that? Is that what he meant? He distorts the message. He troubles the hearer so that they will fall into sin and ultimately fall into a false gospel that cannot save. Satan's number one priority is to keep you and those that you love from hearing the true gospel message. He will distract you. He will distort the message. He will flood your whatever with all sorts of other messages. That is his primary role. It is the only message that can save. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. That name is Jesus Christ. John 14. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And if there's an aim in Satan's arsenal or his agenda, it's to keep you from hearing the true gospel message over and over and over again. Initially for salvation, but even for the believer, it's to get you to forget the gospel and to go out and live like a spiritual orphan, trying to earn your salvation once again. I tell you what, the days that I forget the gospel which is embarrassingly a lot, if I'm being honest, they're the worst days of my week. Why? Because the burden's on me once again to go out and try to win God's approval. And I never can. And the beauty of the gospel is reminding yourself that you don't have to. Jesus earned God's kindness and his approval and his grace for me. He's the one that did it. He lived the life I should have lived and he took my punishment, the wrath that was designated for me. He took it on the cross. He felt the abandonment from the Father. He felt the weight of God's wrath. He felt the one who knew no sin became sin so that you and I, sinners, might become the righteousness of God. He felt all of that so that you and I could have the grace of God, the approval of God, the holiness and the righteousness of God, he has done it. So, Paul says some pretty strong language, and I wanna mention this too, and we won't belabor this, but he says, even if we, and he says, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And it's interesting there that Paul mentions an angel from heaven. Uh, the word angel in the Greek is just the word angelos. It just means a messenger. But he says, if, if it's me, if it's Barnabas, if it's anybody else, if it's Michael or if it's Gabriel, if somebody comes along and they change the original message, regardless of where they come from, they do not come from the source, which is Jesus Christ. And that's the argument Paul's about to make. Hey, this message comes straight from the source. When I met Jesus on the road and he commissioned me himself and he gave me this gospel message. 
And if somebody comes and they change the message, then they, they're not coming from the true source. Doesn't matter who it is. If I, if somebody else departs from grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, let him be set aside for destruction by God himself. And it's interesting, Paul actually brings this up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, he says this about angels preaching a different message. Um, I'll read a couple of verses to you, starting in verse one. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, he's talking spiritually there, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Your thoughts will be led astray from Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one you ex accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And then I'll skip to verse 12. He says this, and what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, and here's where he talks about angels. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. What he's saying here, one, he says that false teachers are servants of Satan. Those that prey on brothers and sisters, prey on people who are coming to hear the true gospel and preach to them a different gospel change the gospel, send them out thinking that it's up to them, making the gospel about health and wealth and not about getting Jesus as your ultimate prize, but it's about all these other things that Jesus never promised us in this life, making coming to Jesus just about earthly betterness and earthly circumstances and not the next world and being with Christ forever and being redeemed from your sin. He says that they are servants of Satan. But scripture also tells us that in Isaiah 14, if you want the reference, in Ezekiel chapter 28, um, that Satan was an angel who had fallen. Why did he fall? Because of his pride. He wanted to be like God. He did not want to serve God. He did not want to worship God. He wanted to be God. And what did he do? He fell. And now what does he do? This angel, even Satan, disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The first sin that entered humanity was a former angel who fell, tempting man and woman, changing the gospel message. Paul says it has been happening since the beginning. Do not fall into that temptation. Regardless of who it is, if they don't preach the true message of the gospel, do not believe it. Let them be accursed. Let them be accursed. Verse nine, he says this. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now there's some debate here and I'll be fair to both sides about whether Paul, when he says, let me say again, or I've said before, now I say again, if he's referring to his missionary journey, 
you know, year or two ago or if he's referring to five seconds ago when he just said, let him be accursed. Um, I don't know if there's enough evidence to determine likewise. There's smart people on both sides that think it's one or the other. Um, but Paul is repeating himself for emphasis. I wouldn't go as far as to say he pronounces a double curse, you know, where you add the two curses together, but he wants you to be clear. Let this person who preaches a false message be set aside for the wrath and the destruction of God. If anybody comes now, later, do not fall prey to this message. And then he says this, verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now here's what's fascinating about this verse is this is actually an accusation that Paul was facing from the Judaizers, from the false teachers. They would go to the churches of Galatia and they were accusing Paul of trying to preach this easy believism gospel. Hey, Paul's actually afraid to give you the real gospel and he wants to be liked and he wants you to believe him so he's giving you the easy gospel that can't save you. And Paul brings up this argument and says, am I trying to seek the approval of man or of God? And he says, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And here's what Paul is arguing. It would have actually been so much easier for Paul to follow along with the status quo, to preach the same Jesus plus all these works and just leave it up to people to try to earn their own salvation, to not buck the system, to not show up and say, hey, you're set free from all of those things in the Old Testament law. You're set free from the burden of the law. You're set free from the power of sin when you put your faith in Christ. It would have been easier if he truly feared man to just go along with what they were teaching. You know what's not easy? The gospel message. The gospel message is offensive. It is offensive enough on his own. Paul's, he's gonna argue, I don't have to add anything else to it. It's an offensive message. And what we're gonna be more tempted to do is just tell people half the gospel. Is to tell people that oh, Jesus is amazed with you and he's just, you're just so awesome and he loves you and you're the apple of his eye and just keep doing what, and man, God is just so marveled by you. And, and if I'm a, a lost person hearing that, then I'm like, great, because I love me too. And I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Keep thinking how I'm thinking. Keep living how I'm living. If Jesus is that amazed with me, and what are we doing? We're leaving off half the gospel. Why? Because we're fearing man. Paul says, hey, if I would fear man, I would, I would preach a different gospel. I'm preaching the offensive one. You know how offended it is and how offensive it is to our world and to our culture? To say, hey, your righteousness is like filthy rags, and you are children of the devil. Our culture doesn't like that message, do they? And so often we give them half the gospel and we leave off the bad news, which makes the good news very cheap, which is, hey, you're pretty awesome and Jesus came to make you a little more awesome. That's not the gospel. That's not repent of your sin and believe on Christ. That's a message that can't save. But out of fear of man, we're so tempted to not give the bad news. But it's the truth of the bad news that actually makes the good news that much better. And Paul says, hey, I could have came and gave an easy message. I'm actually given the hard message, which is that all of us deserve, we rightly deserve, we are sinful, we are wicked, and we rightly deserve God to punish us. God is just. 
And he is holy and righteous and will not let sin go unpunished. He won't. It is against his nature to just call, you know, turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't just snap his finger and make it disappear. No, we want a God who calls evil, evil and punishes it. The problem with that is God has to deal with us if that's who he is. And God is just, but he is also merciful and gracious. And he deals with our sin and he shows grace to us. And where do those two worlds collide? At the cross. We see the justice of God and the wrath of God poured out towards sin. And we see the grace and the mercy of God extended to all who might receive and believe in his name. Paul says, I could have given you a different message. That's keep on behaving, keep on working for it. Hey, Jesus got you some of the way, but go and finish it. I could have kept the status quo. But I'm actually preaching a message that says you're free from the law. You don't have to earn God's love anymore. You can't. You're sinful. You're a wretch. None of us can do it. And God did it for us in Christ. So now you're set free from that burden. You no longer have to live according to those customs to try to earn God's love. You're set free from those. And that's a message that the world does not want to hear. That you and I are deserving of God's wrath. We love to look around at someone else who's a little worse off and say, but I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. The amount of times that I have lovingly sat with someone and said, surely God wouldn't punish Sally. She's a good neighbor. She gets the paper every morning. She waves. She's nice. All of these questions about why would God allow blank come from a premise that we don't deserve what we're currently going through. When scripture would say, no, we deserve far worse. But we have a God who is gracious and he is kind and in his common grace, he allows all of us to wake and to breathe and in his saving grace, he calls people to himself to save them from their sin and welcome them into the family of his son. That's the good news of the gospel. And Paul recognizes the incongruity of being a slave to Christ and pleasing man. In this verse, Paul says, hey, those two things don't go together. They are oil and water. Try to be a slave to Christ and try to please the world, please the culture. You know, we used to say, hey, that world, that day is coming when you're Devotion for Christ and your outspokenness for Christ and your living for Christ, there's gonna be a day coming when the world's not gonna like that. Church, look around. To be a slave to Christ is no longer congruent with pleasing the world and pleasing man. They are no longer congruent and Jesus was preparing us for this. He says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that they've hated me first. They're going to hate you. Why? Because the world doesn't want to hear a message that they deserve God's wrath and that they're in sin and they can't save themselves. We love to think that we can do it on our own. Just give me another try. Just give me another chance. Give me a couple more months, a couple more weeks. The uh, Russian guy I was talking to last week told us this story of, um, there's a man um, he's, he's older, so he lived through you know the 60s and 70s and the whole hippie phase and all those kind of things. And he had a friend who looked like Jesus, 
um, according to him. You know, we don't know what Jesus actually looked like, but he, he thinks he looked like, I guess, all the pictures of Jesus. And he said, at one point, um, he was making a sales call back when you'd walk up and knock on people's doors, and this lady started running. Like, no, 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 no. And turns out she thought he was Jesus. And she was like, I need more time. I gotta go and try to be good enough. And then he said on another occasion, there was a man, young special needs teenager, um, who he's at the store, uh, this Jesus looking man, and this young boy just runs up and embraces him. And his mom comes running a couple steps behind and said, hey, I'm sorry, um, he thinks you're Jesus. And you have two responses. There's gonna be two responses when we meet Jesus. It's gonna be, no, I need more time because I think I have to earn it. And he's gonna say, depart from me for I never knew you. Or it's gonna be a run and an embrace and say, thank you for saving me and giving up yourself so that I could be made righteous and I could be brought into the family of God. Thank you for taking on my sin. There's two responses when we meet Jesus. And one is gonna be, I still think I can do it. And he will say, depart from me. And the other will say, it is only by your kindness and your mercy and your grace that I'm here. I bring nothing to the table. The only part of my salvation that I contributed towards was my sin and my resisting. That's it. You did the rest. You drew me to yourself. You paid the ransom price for me. You died the death that I deserve. And you bring me into the family of God. So, the culture will hate this gospel message. So what does that mean? Do we go to war with the culture? No. We love them, right? You don't go to war with a lost person to try to win them to Christ. What do you do? You love them. Who do you think will look like when the watching world mocks us and slanders us and we return their slander for kindness and for love and for prayer? Who are we gonna look like when we do that? the very savior who saved us when the world mocked him and slandered him and beat him and reviled him. That's what will win the watching world. When they take from us and they accuse us and they make fun of us and they slander us and we return evil for good, for blessing, for kindness, for compassion. And we joyfully let go of the things of this world because we have a better prize. That's a life that Paul would say in Philippians 1 is worthy of the gospel, that's in balance with the gospel message. That's what we do. So as we interact with the lost world, we don't hate them, we don't slander them, we don't revile them, we love them. And we joyfully keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and say, come what may, my hope is not in this world. I am a citizen of another world. I have a greater prize than anything that this world could ever offer. So what do we do as we wrap up this morning? Here's the goodness of the gospel. You and I deserve to be cursed. We deserve in our sin to be set aside for the wrath of God. But here's the good news According to the eternal wise plan and the good pleasure of God, God set someone else aside to take on his wrath. And in his providence and in his sovereignty, he set you and I aside, if you're in Christ, for grace. 
Why do we get to be set aside for grace and for holiness? Because he set his own son aside to take his wrath. And that message is free for anyone to receive. And all you have to do is repent of trying to earn it yourself. Admit your inadequacy, admit you can't do it, and fall at the feet of the cross and receive the free gift of God's grace through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're in here this morning, you've fallen into religion. The beauty about the letter of Galatians is they're still breathing, there's still time. Paul's saying, hey, you can't undo your circumcision, but you can repent of that act of trying to save yourself. Whatever religion you've turned to, if it's reading your Bible, if it's going to church, if you're here this morning because you think God might save you because of your deeds, all you have to do is repent of that. I'm not trusting in those works anymore. I'm trusting in what Jesus has done. Repent of those things and turn to Jesus. For some of you, you might need to do that the first time. Others of you, join the club and let's do it daily. Remembering what we have in the gospel and repenting of all the ways we try and earn it ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us, God, as we talk about the offense of the message, as we talk about the, the judgment on the false teachers, God, that it would not result in hate God, that we would rejoice with the truth, as your scripture says. God, that we would be people of the truth, that we would fight for the truth. But God, ultimately, that we would have an attitude like Paul in Romans 9, who says that, um, not literally, but I would almost say that I would rather be a curse so that my lost brothers and sisters could be brought in. God, give us that heart who looks around at this world, God, as you tarry, as you wait, as you're patient. God, that we would look around at our families. God, we would have a heart like Paul, God, who longs for them to be set free from the curse. And as we'll see in a couple verses, that you became a curse for us to redeem us who were under the curse of sin. God, I'm grateful for the day as the, the Bible ends, Revelation 22. Well, it says the curse will be over. There will be no curse in the new heavens and the new earth. So God, help us keep our eyes fixed on that day. Help us to rejoice with the truth. God, and help us to be ministers of reconciliation with the true gospel message to those around us. To the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.